0: You are about to enjoy a presentation Recorded at the 2021 Michigan Conference Camp Meeting Held at Cedar Lake, Michigan We pray that the Lord will bless you as you listen Loving Father, we
1: thank you this afternoon For Jesus Christ Our Savior and Lord When we think about the world in which we live, when we think about the difficulties that we sometimes face, we ask ourselves through the Spirit, where would we be without Jesus? This afternoon, we invite your presence to be with us, and we simply pray this afternoon, the prayer of Jesus. Make us one, Lord. Make us one. Holy Spirit, make us one. Let your love flow so that the world will know we are one in you. Do that for us, Lord. And throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity, we will praise you. And we will praise you in Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Excuse me, I got to help my wife. She got to be closer. (laughs)
0: Thank
1: you. Okay, we are again looking at our subject. And our subject is His Invitation. Reconciliation, Unity, and Latter-Rain Power. And this afternoon we want to quickly review our purpose and the outline.
2: This presentation is designed to demonstrate the absolute necessity of the acceptance of Christ-centered communal reconciliation through the Spirit as a prerequisite for unity and latter rain power.
1: And this is the outline. This is the material that we've already covered. You know, we looked at the old consensus for for Romans, and we've looked at the new consensus, and now we're dealing with the textual analysis. And it is entitled...
2: The Spirit of Life in Christ Jesus.
1: When we come together tomorrow, we're going to begin to look at what Paul calls life according to the flesh or life in the flesh versus life in the spirit. And then the next day,
2: so what? In other words, the application towards the theology of reconciliation, unity, and latter power. And then his invitation The Gospel imperative, welcome one another, for Christ has welcomed you. Okay,
1: and so we want to go to the text this afternoon, and so we're going to look at it one more time. It is Romans 8, 1 through 17, and we'll have it for you on the screen, and of course you can look at it in your Bible.
2: Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit." However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father, The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him.
1: And here is an interpretive note we shared with you on Sunday, but we want to share it again just by way of review.
2: This passage functions as an internal summary and transition In Paul's argument to believers in Rome.
1: Yeah and so we want to also remind you and this is a little review of how you go about interpreting scripture and the big technical term is that term exegesis and it has a very simple meaning.
2: Exegesis is used to establish what the text meant then Literally, to pull out the author's inspired meaning.
1: Now, it is so easy when you read the Bible, if you're not careful, to read into the Bible your thoughts, to read into the Bible your values, to read into the Bible your culture. And so it is very important to follow the process that we're outlining right now. And we recommend to you that if your pastor has not sat with you and taught you this process, we learn it in the seminary, then they should do that. It's a very important process because you don't want to add or subtract from the Bible. You know, you remember Revelation 22, right? Right. Yeah, so we're not supposed to add or subtract. And so here's the three-step process.
2: There are three levels of formal exegesis, historical, cultural, literary, which involves the immediate context, the verses or the passage before your passage of interest and that behind your passage of interest, and also grammar analyses.
1: And stuff like word studies, and we have so many tools now. You know, you don't have to have any kind of degrees in theology to really study the Bible. You know, it's interesting, my mom, my mom did not have real formal education, but she was a giant in the Word. And so the Spirit can work with you in that Word. And this process is very important. Now look at the third level.
2: Theological, Christological. The interpretive key being to discover God's saving purpose in Christ.
1: Now this is extremely important and so again we want to show it to you visually and so when you're dealing with biblical interpretations there are what we call two horizons of interpretation. So horizon one is the the horizon of meaning. So today we're dealing with a first century text So the first thing that we want to clarify in our mind is this idea of what it, the meaning of the text then, in other words, in the first century. That's what we have to determine. That's what we have to discover. And so we start with the inspired author. Paul was inspired by God. Today, we're going to look at his message to the Romans and there were original recipients. And so we call this the original context. And so we have to do things to make sure that we are looking at it in context, in its original context. And so you identify the principles and then the original applications before you come to the second horizon, and that is significance now. So remember, we're dealing with a first century text, and we are 21st century believers, okay? And so you still have a process because you have to have, as an interpreter of the text, you have to have the illumination of the Holy Spirit, right? You want to deal with the same message, not a different message, but we're different recipients because this is a new context. We want to identify those original principles, but there are new applications. Now, again, I want to show you all of your Bible study, all of your Bible interpretation must lead you here. Did you see it? It must lead you to Christ or you have just engaged in heresy. And I can prove it to you. I can prove it to you. Look at what Jesus says here.
2: You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that testify of me.
1: Now look at what Jesus says to these scholars, to these Jewish scholars. Look at the next line.
2: Yet you refuse to come to me to have life.
1: Wow. So all of scripture bears witness to one person, and that one person is who? Jesus Christ. Okay. Everybody clear? We good? Okay. Now, we're going to look at textual analysis. So we're going to our text now, and we're going to start with Romans 8 verses 1 and 2. So this is the text, and today we're only going to deal with a bit of the two verses, the first two verses. And so, the passage.
2: Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death.
1: Now, you can see it on the screen, I hope, um, because this passage is color-coded and it means something. So that word, therefore, is extremely important. You know, it's a conjunction, and it is connecting conjunction, and so it connects all the things that went before the first seven chapters with chapter 8. And we're going to deal with that, but we're not going to deal with it today. So look at the analysis.
2: Before treating Paul's summary statement in verse 1, three related questions may be raised. First... What do you make of the expression, the spirit of life in Jesus Christ?
1: The spirit of life in Jesus Christ is a very important phraseology here, and we're going to come to it at a point.
2: Why the linkage between the spirit and Christ?
1: Hmm, spirit and Christ.
2: For Paul, who is the Holy Spirit, and what role does the spirit play in salvation?
1: Is that an important question, by the way, saints? Yeah, the role of the Holy Spirit. And we're going to show you why it's so important. And so it moves us to contemporary clarification.
2: The person and work of the Holy Spirit is distorted in postmodern Christianity, even in Adventism.
1: Did you get that? Look at that word distortion or distorted. So we're saying that People are not thinking correctly about the Spirit, particularly in post-modernity. In other words, in our culture. We're not thinking correctly about the Holy Spirit. And so the key point...
2: Clarification of the Spirit's role is necessary to rightly divide the word of truth.
1: Yeah, so before we can really, you know, munch on this word, this bread, this manner we have to clarify the role of the Holy Spirit. So, we're going to start with this distortion and explain it.
2: Modern confusion regarding the Spirit. The emphasis now is the Spirit over the Word.
1: In other words, the Spirit as an independent actor. You see this everywhere now and we're going to show it to you because it's so important. And it's such a subtle deception. Source. Get this now, the source.
2: Charismatic evangelicals. And how
1: many of you are familiar with the charismatic movement? Anybody? The charismatic movement. You know, it is not a denomination It is a movement, and it's still a movement. So you can have charismatic Catholics. You can have charismatic Baptists. It doesn't matter. And so we're talking about the fact that charismatic evangelicals are partly responsible for this distortion that we're about to describe. Let us give you an example. So if you're not familiar with charismatic worship, that's it, okay? And I know it was a bit thrilling for some of you. Okay, Okay, clarification.
2: There's confusion regarding the meaning of spiritual.
1: This notion of spiritual, people are using this term and even secular people are now using the term, this notion of spiritual.
2: Popular religion thinks about spiritual as an emotional experience.
1: An emotional experience. This is what is in view when we talk about spiritual.
2: Even in Adventism.
1: And so this is even in the Seventh-day Adventist church. And so let me give you an example from our church. Yes, I've got it. Yes, I've got it.
2: It's interesting that both those groups are singing the same song, I've got it.
1: Yeah, I got it, and you say, you got (laughs) what, huh? (laughs) Okay, and let's be clear for a moment because there is a difference. What we're describing here is emotionalism. There's a difference between emotion and emotionalism. You know, just like there's a difference between rationalism and reason. And we'll talk about that in a moment. We don't want to to in any way talk negatively about emotion because God gave us emotion. And the Bible tells us that Jesus wept, you know, and so emotion comes from God. But in this last illustration, we want to show you, so what you were looking at were Gen Zs. You know, that's how sociologists describe that group, you know, millennials and then Gen Zs. Look at the cultural allurements. So look at what they were doing. They were having an emotional good time. And now look at the cultural allurements that they have to deal with in culture. The party scene, right? You see it? Movies. Movies focusing on particularly sexuality. Same-sex relations. Drugs. You see all of this? Fashion. Facebook, you know, where you, where you now find your value. You know, you get a like. I'm just showing them to you.
3: Pornography. Sports. And
1: this one is interesting because this is this whole idea of gender fluidity. Look at the person's face. Gender fluidity. You know, you can't really tell, and it's kind of small, but you can't really tell if he is a male or female. That's the idea. This is sex in the city. It used to be one of the most popular programs on television. This is what young people are dealing with. And by the way, even young Seventh-day Adventists are dealing with these influences. And so when you focus on a praise emphasis, there are tragic consequences. And I want you to see this. And I want you to talk to your children and to your grandchildren about this and even your great-grandchildren. Because when you have an emotional or praise emphasis, when you are fed, like this little child, emotional experiences, it only at best can have what psychologists call the placebo effect. In other words, you feel good in the moment. You know, so when, when you're hopping up and down and you, you know, like those folks on both videos, they're having a good time, right? Did you see that? It may not seem like a good time to you all, you all not feeling. Okay, you want to understand that from a spiritual standpoint, that experience does not provide freedom from bondage. And we have talked to young people. You know, matter of fact, when you do all that stuff, you immediately experience a down. And here's the big, big factor. There is no victory in Jesus Christ based on emotionality. And so, this is a serious issue. You know, we have to love our young people and show them a little bit of Jesus. Come on, Saints. So that they will fall in love with Him and the freedom that Jesus provides. Look at this. And I know it's going to kind of blow you away. So, look at this stat.
2: The most recent study reveals that 77% of American Christian males view pornography regularly.
1: Did you know that? 77% and do you know what pornography does to the brain? Oh my goodness. You know, the release of dopamine Addiction, and these are Christians. These are these are professed Christians, and don't sit here and think that it's not affecting us. You know, I've been teaching in our institutions for twenty-five years. I taught at AUC, and I'm now I've been at Oakwood for a long time, twenty-two years. And so we're dealing with Gen Z's every day, and they're struggling with these issues. And we have to have a way of introducing them again to freedom. We want to tell you a little bit now about the roots of the distortion. You know, this whole thing of the role of the Holy Spirit. We want to show you something about the root. Do you know any of these names? Give them the names, hon.
2: Ken, Copeland, Dollar, Hagen, Jakes, Osteen, Wagner, Meyer. Do any of them sound familiar? Mm-hmm.
1: Oh, boy, these are some of the biggest names in Christendom in America. Uh, let me tell you, and I don't see my friend, uh, the finance person, Alistair. Alistair. But um, all of these people, they have plenty money, (laughs) each and every one. They're multimillionaires, okay? And we want to show you something now about the roots of this distortion of the role of the Holy Spirit.
2: So you see on the tree, Pentecostalism and then the charismatic movement, and then third wave and all the branches that come out of it. So everything basically in modern times spring from the Pentecostal movement, Pentecostalism, which started uh, with a man by the name of Charles F. Parham, Charles Fox Parham, who was um, sort of an unordained Methodist for a while, but eventually came to the uh, notion that In order for a person to truly be converted, they had to have this second experience, which was this baptism of the Holy Spirit that followed your regular baptism. And so he started a Bible college in Topeka, Kansas in 1900 called the Bethel Bible College. Now, Charles Parham was a white person. Many people think that Pentecostalism started with black people in the United States, and many black people even think that it came from Africa, which in fact it did not. Uh, and I'll show you in a a minute that we as Americans actually took this to Africa but in any event he started this Bible college and in 1901 on January the 1st there was the first experience of speaking in tongues and this was a young woman that was at the college her name was Agnes Osmond and so she was the first modern person to speak in tongues and um From that, um, he developed again the the notion further that in order for a person to truly have been baptized by the Holy Spirit, they had to speak in tongues. He had another disciple, another student in that college, who was a black man by the name of William J. Seymour. Seymour was uh, from Texas, I believe, but in 1906, he left that college and went to Los Angeles to spread the word of Pentecostalism. And so he went to a church uh, that they eventually rented, I think, and then obtained on Azusa Street in Los Angeles. And so there was an explosion of Pentecostalism based on his evangelical preaching, and it became known as the Azusa Street Revival. And this was a movement that was... um, just explosive as I said in Los Angeles it was an interracial movement so people of all races came to the church and they even sent out missionaries to Africa so America took Pentecostalism to Africa not the other way around but in any event um, the unity that they experienced in that church lasted until about 1909 and their slogan was the blood has washed away the color line. That's what they said. But in 1909, that, this movement was attacked by the uh, secular media in Los Angeles and people began to rail against the fact that they had interracial worship. And so by 1924, um, the church had so succumbed to the criticism that they had received that they separated and have been separated for many years until about 1994, in fact. But in any event, Um, This was uh, the uh, initiation of many what we call holiness and Pentecostal churches throughout America, but it wasn't mainstream. But in the 1950s, it went mainstream. So around 1955, um, some people in the mainstream churches, such as Anglican churches, I mean, uh, um, Episcopal churches, Methodist churches, and whatever, began to play around with what they called charismatic experiences. They want to sort of move it away from this um, stereotype that this was a black movement. And so you saw in 1960 um, the priest of an Anglican Episcopal church in um, Van Nuys, California. His name was Dennis Bennett. And he and some others had been experimenting with charismatic experiences and came out in 1960 and announced to his church that he had had the baptism of the Holy Spirit not necessarily speaking in tongues but charismatic experiences that he thought indicated this higher level of spirituality and worship and so um he was eventually forced to resign from his church but he went to another church um in Seattle Washington and continued this and started what was called um the um Charismatic revival, and this was the beginning of charismatic worship that has spread now worldwide. This is the largest religious movement in the world. It covers every continent and every denomination, but there is this distortion of the Holy Spirit that the Holy Spirit gives you these gifts that cause you to do various things, and this is the the root of the uh, Pentecostal charismatic movement as we know it today.
1: Now, it emphasizes two things, and we want you to get this now because we're going to talk about the proper role of the Holy Spirit. But we want to show you the distortion first. So it emphasizes what is called subjectivism. In other words, belief in God based on my personal experience or feeling. You know, so this is how it is all conceived. It is the subjective experience. And then on the other hand, you have sensationalism. In other words, belief in God based on physical manifestation. And this is why you see all of these things. Have you ever watched um, Benny Hinn? You know, he'll hit somebody in the head and he'll fall back, you know, and, and they've been slain in the spirit. Mm-hmm. You know, this idea of an emotional Experience, a manifestation of the Holy Spirit. You have to see something physically happen in order to know that the Holy Spirit is working.
2: And as we said in that earlier slide, the notion is that this experience supersedes the Word of God. So people believe in this thing called the Word of Revelation, where whatever God reveals to me in my present experience is more important than what it says in the Bible and can in fact contradict what it says in the Bible.
1: Yes. And now, this is a very big part of charismatic evangelical emphasis. Have you ever heard the expression, name it and claim it? Have you heard that? Yeah, this is very much a part of prosperity theology, which is a part of this movement also. That the Holy Spirit will give you what you want. So we we talk about it this way.
2: Spirit as Santa.
1: uh, You like that one? Spirit as Santa. Here's another one.
2: Spirit as cosmic bellhop. Yeah.
1: You know, and so the Spirit is going to give you the desire of your heart. Let me give you an example of this ministry and its power in our culture. Some of you are not familiar with it.
0: Forgive us of every sin. Sins of omission. Sins of commission. In the name of Jesus. Every chain can be broken. Every shackle can be broken. You're part of the family of God.
1: God we ask and we believe for your healing Power and grace to touch his body and make him whole. Just by here say, Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, forgive me for my sins. Forgive me for my sins. I believe in my heart. I believe in my heart that Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ died for my sins. In Jesus' name. In Jesus name I'm saved. I'm saved. I'm Gibson.
0: I'm Bishop Clarence E. McClendon. My name is Dietrich Haddon. I'm Wayne Chaney. My name is Jay Hazler. My name is Noah Jones. The Bible says that I wish above all things that you would prosper and be in health, even as your soul will prosper. I believe that. P. Diddy, Jay-Z,
1: they're not the only ones who should be driving Ferraris and living in large houses.
3: The Bible says that those who sow among us should reap from us. That's implying that the
1: preacher's to be taken care of. I like being successful.
0: Security is a necessary part of what we do. Being a pastor is very dangerous because you have to be perfect at all times. People put you up on a pedestal
1: that you can't live on.
0: Pastors are people just like everybody else. It's all about truth for me from this point on. The truth about my baby out of wedlock. The truth about my divorce. It happened. There's nothing I can do about that. I'm a pastor, but at the end of the day, I'm a man. Does it ever get to a place where
1: it's really not about love, but it's about winning?
3: Winning what? Winning a, a man or a relationship? No, winning me. Winning me. You're not a prize. I, I am a prize. A prize. <laughs>
1: That's right. Maybe I don't love you as much as you love me.
3: Maybe you don't. And maybe I don't love you as much as you think I love you.
1: I am trying my best to balance it all. And just when you think you haven't managed. Let's get through this, man. Okay? If we plan on having more children, I want to be married. We have more than you a re- relationship like I'm your part of your, your congregation. I'm not don't pastor me
0: best part of my job is helping hurting people you're going to be who God called you to be you're a leader I
1: didn't think you could be young brothers until it happened to me my life has changed living in the streets dodging
0: bullets that's the low life there's a life brothers where you can be free I believe that no one is beyond redemption. What I really love about being a pastor is seeing people's lives change.
2: Everywhere I go, I try to influence people. I try
1: to help them. At the end of the day, this is what I was made to do. By the way, when it aired, it was one of the most popular series on television for a long time. Now we wanna show you something about this movement that is far more serious and it's related to their theology. Now look at this theology, We want to show you in three steps. First, this theology teaches and it's dispensationalism that we had an age or a, or a dispensation of the Holy Spirit. In other words, the Holy, um, excuse me, the age of the Father. In the Old Testament, the Father had his time, his period. This is the age of the Father. Then we move to the age of the Son, Jesus Christ, and it's this New Testament period. This is the idea. This is what is taught in evangelical charismatic circles. And then look at this, and this is the distortion, the big distortion, the age of the Spirit. That's the New Testament beginning with Pentecost all the way to the second coming. You are now in the age of the Holy Spirit. And the idea is that everything is now focused not on the Son of God, but on the primacy of the Holy Spirit. You know, so you hear people talking all the time about the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit. And we want to correct that this afternoon because now we want to talk about it, this distortion about the work of the Holy Spirit. And it 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 has infiltrated our own church. So look at this.
2: Traditional SDA, worship without emotion.
1: Yeah. And so we believe that the opposite is true. Worship without emotion is what?
2: Superior.
1: Worship without emotion. That's the reaction. That's the other extreme. But look at what Ellen White says because she critiques this whole notion of what she calls dry worship. Look at it.
2: Counsel and worship. Our meetings should be made intensely interesting. They should be pervaded with the very atmosphere of heaven. Let there be no long dry speeches and formal prayers merely for the sake of occupying the time. All should be ready to act their part with promptness. And when their duty is done, the meeting should be closed. Thus the interest will be kept up to the last. This is offering to God acceptable worship. His service should be made interesting and attractive and not be allowed to degenerate into a dry form.
1: Mm. And now look at what she says about prayer in worship.
2: All that is done in the service of God should be done with wholeheartedness. Let ministers and teachers pray with hearts overflowing with love for God. The people become weary of listening to prayers that are as dry, as destitute of moisture as the hills of Gilboa, or destitute of dew and rain. It is hard to imagine anything more icy, more devoid of fervor, than many of the prayers offered by ministers whose petitions ought to be warm with the fire of God's love. Tame, spiritless prayers are a sign of a Christless heart. He whose heart is softened and subdued by the love of God will pray with fervency and zeal.
1: Ah, did you get Ellen White? Okay, so get this now, this idea of superior because there is no emotion, and why is it that it's so problematic? It is deceptive in and of itself. And we really want you to get this this afternoon.
2: Comparison creates a false cultural premise for worship.
1: Yeah, so if you compare uh, this type of emotional worship with these people, with this type of worship uh, that has emotion, so no emotion over here, emotion over there, then you are creating a cultural premise, and it's a false premise. And we want to show you, we want to give you an example, and this may be difficult, but let's talk about it false premise huh? as a cultural preference. So look at the premise. So here you have a person who comes to worship and their worship is Eurocentric. You know, this is the kind of worship that they will tolerate. And it's usually called high church the high church experience. And most of the time, it's devoid of what? Emotion. On the other hand, you have a church that is what? Dealing with Afrocentrism. Huh? And again, you have the same worshiper. And, and can you tell me what's wrong with this? Think about worship and the premise is my own culture. So, so let me ask you a question. Then, how are we going to worship together in heaven when worship is based on my culture or your culture or Latino culture or Asian culture? Yeah, well, we'd be different places in heaven, huh? <laughs> Because Satan has given us a faulty premise. Culture is not the premise for worship. You know, my wife and I, we were one of the charter members, founding members of the All Nations Seventh-day Adventist Church when it first started in, in Berrien Springs, Michigan. And one of the most beautiful things about it was the diversity of worship. And I'm talking about worship expression now. Because real worship, genuine worship, goes much deeper. And we'll talk about that. We're almost finished now. Let's move. Here's the false premise. Get it now. You have centrism, and where is Christ? Yeah, on the periphery.
2: This is idolatry. critical assertions. Any centrism, Euro or Afro, other than Christ-centrism is idolatry, a creation of Lucifer.
1: Can we get that clear together? Well, you all don't want to get it clear, huh? You want to get it clear? Okay, yeah. Any ism put something or someone other than Jesus Christ at the center.
2: In addition, this binary premise creates division over the content and style of worship.
1: So I, 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 I just don't like your worship. You know, I would never expose myself to that kind of worship. Yeah, it doesn't do anything for me. Mm
3: -hmm.
1: You know, and really, is worship about me in the end? And so, the work of the Spirit clarified. Look at it.
0: What is the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives today? We're going to answer that question. Of all the gifts given to mankind by God, there is none greater than the presence of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit has many functions, roles, and activities. First, He does a work in the hearts of all people everywhere. Jesus told the disciples that He would send the Spirit into the world to convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. Everyone has a God consciousness, whether they admit it or not. The Spirit applies the truths of God to the minds of men to convince them that they are sinners. Responding to that conviction brings men to salvation. Once we are saved and belong to God, the Spirit takes up residence in our hearts forever, sealing us with the confirming, certifying, and assuring pledge of our eternal state as his children. Jesus said that he would send the Spirit to be our helper, comforter, and guide. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. The Greek word translated as counselor means one who is called alongside, and has the idea of someone who encourages and exhorts. The Holy Spirit takes a permanent residence in the hearts of believers. Jesus gave the Spirit as a compensation for his absence to perform the functions toward us which he would have done if he had remained personally with us. Among those functions is the revealing of truth. The Spirit's presence within us enables us to understand and interpret God's word. Jesus told his disciples that when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he He will guide you into all truth. He reveals to our minds the whole counsel of God as it relates to worship, doctrine, and Christian living. He is the ultimate guide, going before, leading the way, removing obstructions, opening the understanding, and making all things plain and clear. He leads in the way we should go in all spiritual things. Without such a guide, we would be apt to fall into error. A crucial part of the truth he reveals is that Jesus is who he said he is. The Spirit convinces us of Christ's deity and incarnation, his being the Messiah, his suffering and death, his resurrection and ascension, his exaltation at the right hand of God and his role as the judge of all. He gives glory to Christ in all things. Another one of the Holy Spirit's roles is being a gift giver. 1 Corinthians 12 describes the spiritual gifts given to believers in order that we may function as the body of Christ on earth. All these gifts are given by the Spirit so that we may be His ambassadors to the world, showing His grace and glorifying Him. The Spirit also functions as a fruit producer in our lives. When He indwells us, He begins the work of harvesting His fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are not works of our flesh, which is incapable of producing such fruit, but they are the products of the Spirit's presence in our lives. The knowledge that the Holy Spirit of God has taken up residence in our lives, that He performs all these miraculous Functions that He dwells with us forever and that He will never leave or forsake us is cause for great joy and comfort. Thank God for this precious gift, the Holy Spirit, and His work in our lives. That answers the question What is the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives today?
1: And so, we want to emphasize finally one thing that was said in that video, and it is the most important thing and we want to expose to you the true premise, the true premise as we think about the work of the Holy Spirit, and we take it from the words of Jesus. Jesus says,
2: When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own, but he will speak whatever he hears. He will also declare to you what is to come.
1: Now keep in mind that Jesus is describing the work of the third member of the Godhead. And listen to the language that Jesus is using here. Listen.
2: He will glorify me because he will take from what is mine and declare it to you. Everything the Father has is mine. This is why I told you that he takes from what is mine and will declare it to you.
1: Think about what Jesus is saying here. And I want you to get this as we close. Jesus is saying that the primary role of the Holy Spirit is to glorify Jesus Christ. Huh? And that verb actually means this idea of esteem of another based on the person's nature or character. In other words, when Jesus Christ got out of the grave, the Holy Spirit's job then was to focus on his nature that caused him to come to this earth in the first place. We call it the incarnation. To focus on the fact that Jesus was willing to walk among us, a perfect man in a sinful world. That Jesus died for us, and he was raised for us, and he was ascended for us, and he's interceding for us. And the third member of the Godhead, God himself, glorifying God because of the blessedness of his nature. This is the true work of the Holy Spirit. Don't get it mixed up. The Holy Spirit, you know, I love the Godhead. They have no problem with submitting to one another. Now, we have a problem, but they don't. We want to ask you a final question, and we will have a minute or two for four questions. Here's a
2: final question. Application question. As Adventists, is the Holy Spirit leading us to glorify Jesus Christ in every aspect of faith and practice.
1: It's rhetorical at this point, but we want you to think about it. Is this what the Holy Spirit is doing in your life and in mine? Amen? Um, if we can have the mic, we have about, what, seven minutes? And any questions or comments on the presentation today? This provides a foundation for us now to move into the passage because it's going to talk about a lot. It's going to talk a lot about the work of the Spirit in relationship to Jesus Christ in Romans 8, 1 to 17. And so we wanted to get the negative out of the way so that we could present the positive. Any questions? Go ahead. Just speak up and and I'll rehearse what you
3: say. Paul in his comments after being in Corinth said that he was going to preach Christ and him crucified only. And I've thought about that and wondered how that would be different or the same as what we hear in Adventist churches. Yeah,
1: so Jesus Christ and him crucified. And Paul says it quite a bit, even in Romans, we're gonna talk about it, that the emphasis of the gospel message in the New Testament is extremely clear. The fact of the matter is that sin is so destructive, It is called bondage by Paul, that there is no other way. And so Paul, an intellectual, you know, he was a Jewish intellectual. When he traveled to Athens, he got into discourse that was intellectual. And he discovered that intellectual discourse in and of itself does not change hearts. And so after that experience, and we see the experience in Acts, then when he went to Corinth, another Greek city, he said, huh, later for that, I'm going to focus on Jesus Christ and him crucified because it builds on the notion, Jesus says, when I am lifted up, I will do what? I will draw all men and women to myself. And so Paul, you know, Paul had to learn. You know, our pioneers talked about what? Progressive truth. You know, Paul had to learn also. But when you understand, and and the speaker was talking about it earlier today, when you understand the cross of Jesus Christ and that sacrifice, the very heart of God is revealed. God's unconditional love for his creation. And the good news is that I can be the worst sinner on the planet. But when I know that I am loved by God, man, that's a healing thing. That's a freeing thing. You shall know the truth, Jesus says, and the truth will do what? will set you free. Another question here? Did that help?
3: It's more of a comment, you know, as, as I was watching um, I didn't really get from what you were saying what is the right way. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's like if Christ is in your heart and you go to worship, you're going to look for Christ and what he's saying or what he has to share with you from, you know, wherever you're attending church. Right. Now, I know that there are some... Uh, style of worships that I will not go to because I don't feel comfortable and I believe that if I'm going to worship God, I need to go where I can, you know, peaceably worship God, but but I, I, I'm not going to, um, you know, to just to look at everybody else because I just feel like uh, uh, in today our churches, we um, have their, the worship is designed for us. It's not designed for other people to come in or whatever. It's the songs we like to sing. It's, you know, it's what we like. So I just made a decision for myself. I'm going to worship God. Like he went into the synagogue. That's what I'm doing. And I'm looking for him. And I, I try not to be judgmental of what's going on or, or who or what. Uh, and I just try to, you know, choose. I know the, just the, you know, certain styles that I just, I cannot do. But um, we have a deeper problem than a worship style because we need Christ to really be in our heart. You know, as as a congregation, this is like in-house before we even try to extend worship to others or to anybody else because... Um, I just have a concern that as children of God, how can you be a child of God, but then you don't like your brother or you don't like them because they worship this way or you don't, you know what I'm saying? So we have a deeper problem to me and then I'm going to be quiet. It was like the first, the disappointment. Well, I'm glad that Jesus didn't come because if he would have come, A lot of the so-called Adventists who were waiting for him, they wouldn't have gone with him because their hearts weren't, weren't right towards God because of the way they were treating people. And I feel the only reason why they allowed certain things or let certain things go is because they thought Christ was coming. And I think we have the same problem today. If Jesus would come, a lot of us would not be going with him, because we, have, we can't even get along with each other. You know what I'm saying? We, we, we're making separations and differences and whatever and whatever, and then we don't want to talk about it. We don't want to deal with it. Right. So, Lord, help us all.
1: Yeah, our, our time is up, but I just want to pose a question based on the comment. I want to pose a question, a thought question for all of us. Um my sister talked about worship comfort and I hear that often you know I've been a Seventh-day Adventist minister for 41 years so I hear people talking about I like to be in this worship setting because I feel comfortable okay Now let me ask you a question I want you to think about it I even want you to pray about it before my wife prays and we're over Think about it. Is your comfort or my comfort in worship more important than the prayer that Jesus prayed that we would be one? So that the world might know. Think about it. Pray about it. Let's pray.
2: Dear Father, we thank you so much for the time that we've had together. We thank you for Jesus and for his sacrifice and for his love. And we thank you for his vision of what we can become in him. Help us as we think about the role of the Spirit in our lives, what the Spirit is to do for us and in us and with us in relationship to others. Help us to be able to discern truly what it is that you are calling us to not only in worship, but in our relationships with one another. Help us to exemplify the oneness that is inherent in the Godhead, unity and diversity in Christ. For these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: Amen. Thank you.
0: To listen to more of these presentations, you may visit the audio archives at misda.org audio 2021 or search for Michigan Conference Camp Meeting wherever you get your podcast.